Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Previously on Silenced. We didn't anticipate somebody that close to us will kill a one of us. It was just too much of a coincidence that they were both radio broadcasters, that they had both expressed support of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. We're going to put somebody we know from us, from our group, to become president of the country. Calls of congratulation from the U.S. and other countries to Father Jean-Bertrand Aristide, a popular priest who is the apparent winner of Haiti's first truly free election. That was an explosion of joy in the streets. The streets of Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. It's impossible to describe where people actually had seized the time and they had decided that it was their time to make their voices heard. When Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected president in Haiti's first ever free vote, it was a moment of immense hope and possibility. A whole city, two million people in the streets. Instrumental in making this moment happen was the first independent radio station on the island, Radio Haiti. Michelle Montas ran it with her husband, Jean-Dominique. I was the news editor in the newsroom. Jean was more about the opinion side of uh, the station. Michelle and Jean-Dominique were the most famous voices on air in Haiti. And they were a major inspiration for the likes of Fritz Dorr and Jean-Claude Olivier. Everyone wanted to be a journalist because being a journalist meant acting for change. And this was the same thing in the diaspora. This explosion of speech was a huge change from just a few years prior under the Duvalier regime. We spent 29 years with what we call babouquet, babouquet meaning uh, the gag on our faces. We couldn't talk. By testing the limits of that gag, Radio Haiti became a near constant target. They were shut down in 1980 under baby Doc Duvalier, but came back when his regime fell. Radio Haiti was a lifeline that in many ways could not be suppressed. I was told this story about how in the 1960s, Protestant missionaries handed out battery-powered radios to people in the countryside 
so they could listen to sermons. The radios were locked to the church's frequency, but people figured out how to hack them to tune into Radio Haiti instead. People could not get answers from... The government never gave them answers to their needs. And the radio station where they heard people talk about their needs, they felt that maybe we could be the people giving them solutions. Radio Haiti had made Jean-Dominique very famous in Haiti. He pioneered broadcasting news in Creole, the language that most people spoke. And he and Michel were key players in the democratic movement. So the successful democratic election was seen as Michel and Jean-Dominique's victory, as much as anyone else's. The next day, people spontaneously began beautifying the city, repainting houses, sweeping the streets. The military and the forces opposing Aristide never went away. But for a moment, and for the first time, Michel and Jean-Dominique could report the news without fear. People were speaking freely all over the radio, all over the place. We had achieved freedom of the press. It was a powerful moment of hope. And Jean-Dominique, Michel and Radio Haiti were at the centre of it. Once he took office in February of 1991, Aristide went about trying to defang the military. And other members of the army felt that the army itself was in danger of losing any foothold. But they were biding their time for the right moment to strike. We love Haiti, and we are proud to love Haiti. On September 25th, 1991, Aristide addressed the UN General Assembly. We are citizens of the world, and we are proud to be citizens of the world. Just four days later, when it seemed like things in Haiti were finally changing for the better, the military took its chance. A military uprising is threatening Haiti's young democracy. On a moonlit night, army bases and police stations around the country sent out messages that they were no longer under Aristide's command. The military was in control now. The coup had begun. It just happened. It just happened. We started seeing tanks out in the streets. The rebellious Haitian army troops took over the National Palace. Earlier, at least 26 people were killed as soldiers sprayed gunfire around the capital. Aristide had lasted just eight months in office. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts, this is Silence. I'm Osvaloshin. And I'm Anna Arana. This is Episode 4, Death Squad. Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. At the time of the coup, Jean-Claude and Fritz had been dead for six months. In Miami, the Black Book still had names yet to be crossed off. And the hunt for the real mastermind of this apparent campaign of retribution was no closer to an answer. In fact, the political waves were crashing back and forth between the shores of Port-au-Prince and Miami, harder than ever. Our reporting on the murders has led us again and again back to the presidential palace in Haiti and the international fight over who presided over the island nation during this time. This was such a critical period in Haitian history, a period that so many people point to as a watershed. Had it gone just a bit differently, the entire trajectory of the country could have been different. So to help us understand what happened in Miami, we're going to devote the majority of this episode unpacking the days and weeks after Aristide was ripped from power. The day after the insurrection, the army arrested Aristide, and shortly afterwards, he was sent into exile. Jean-Bertrand Aristide fled to Venezuela this morning, less than a week after he proclaimed at the UN 
that democracy had established a stronghold in Haiti. The man leading the coup, and who was now taking power, was General Raoul Cedras. Cedras was a senior military officer from the Duvalier regime, and he was accused by U.S. officials, including an investigation by the DEA, of being involved in smuggling Colombian cocaine. But when Aristide came to power, he needed to make alliances. So he named Cedras commander-in-chief of the army. And then, months later, Cedras overthrew him. The right wing, they supported the army. They supported the Cedras uh, uh, taking over, taking power. In a speech after the coup, Cedras promised the armed forces will respect constitutional order, guarantee democratic liberty, and will not condone any act of pillage. But the team at Radio Haiti didn't believe a word. The same people who had been pulling the strings before were back in power. We did not believe it was happening. Michel Montas and Jean-Dominique watched on in horror. Their station was shut down like the rest of the island's media. State TV stations broadcast only test patterns. It was back to the worst days of the old gag. After the overthrow of Aristide, and after Aristide left, they came and shot at our house. So Jean and I uh, figured we, maybe we were not too safe staying. Michel and Jean-Dominique started making plans to escape. We went to the airport under an assumed name because we knew that we were targets. Michel says she and her husband boarded a plane headed for the US. But minutes before takeoff, the plane went silent. Two uh, immigration officers came up and said, uh, you have to uh, come down because your papers are not right. They felt they had no choice but to be bundled off the plane. And as they gathered their things and started down the aisle, to their complete surprise, the other passengers stood up and got off the plane too. They stood on the tarmac and they said they wouldn't go if we didn't go. People they didn't know at all, refusing to let the plane take off without John and Michelle. You have to realize also what uh, Radio Haiti represented. To the Haitian public, they felt that... uh, uh, they had to protect us. And to them, to go on that plane and do as if nothing had happened was the worst thing. They were questioned in a military office, but eventually they were allowed to leave. Michel and Jean narrowly escaped arrest and very likely worse. They made it to the US just weeks after Aristide himself was forced from Haiti, but there was little comfort in their relief. It was a shock, it was a shock. The dream of a democratic Haiti was falling apart. And back in Miami, the streets exploded with grief and anger. People set, a, I think, a police cruiser on fire. Businesses were looted. Harold Moss, the Miami Herald reporter. There were people who broke into storefronts and threw out furniture and, and threw tires and an American flag and, and set them on fire in protest. People were shattered, and the situation back in Haiti was about to get worse. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I was there shortly after the coup. I had been to Haiti before the coup and uh, earlier military uh, regimes in Haiti after Dubai left. And it was as bad as I had ever seen it. Bill O'Neill arrived in Haiti to lead the UN's legal department in the chaotic period after the coup. Our monitors were looking at human rights violations. They were looking at extrajudicial killings, torture, forced arrests, arbitrary detention, and horrendous prison conditions. Human rights monitors say dozens of people, mostly Aristide supporters, have been murdered in recent months. And the man who could stop that violence, General Cedras, doesn't seem inclined to do so. And wherever terror and violence went, this name kept coming up. Frap. 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 Yeah, Frap. 
an acronym for the Front for the Advancement and Progress of Haiti. But everyone knew what it really meant. They didn't pronounce the H, and there was a reason for that. Because frappe, in French, frappe, you smack somebody. They left a trail of terror in their wake. They just took their military uniforms off and went into civis, and then they would roam around as frappe. This is no secret how close frappe and, and the army were. They were basically the same thing. As a reporter working in Latin America, I saw this type of thing often. Soldiers not wearing official uniforms, committing atrocities. It all flowed from the top. General Sedras and the other coup leaders had frap terrorizing their political opponents into silence. It's very common in these repressive regimes to basically create a force that you say is not under your control and you're trying, but you can't do much about it. And they're the ones doing all this bad stuff. It's not us, it's these frap guys. But Haitians in exile understood the game that Sedras was playing. Now that they were in the U.S., radio journalists Michel and Jean-Dominique were demanding the restoration of their democratically elected leader. So were the voices of AAO. They called on the U.S. government to do something about it. The U.N. organized a summit, and on July 4th of 1993, after a week of negotiation, Cedras and Aristide struck a deal that became known as the Governor's Island Accord. The army of Haiti had promised they were going to behave and no more human rights violations and RSD could come back and you lift the sanctions. Haitian military commander Raul Cedras signed an agreement calling for him to resign October 15th. Haiti's military junta has agreed to the restoration of democracy in that Caribbean nation. Aristide could return to Haiti by October 30th. Outside of Haiti, there was once again hope that the popularly elected leader of the island would be restored. But Bill O'Neill, who still was in Port-au-Prince, he was not buying this. We begged the policymakers back in New York and Washington to, we told them, look, we know you have the agreement. Wonderful, bravo, but we don't think they're serious about it. Based on this behavior we're seeing in Haiti, and we're documenting it, we're sending it to you each week, we think you need to put more pressure on because the Haitian army is not serious about holding up its end of the bargain. But the decision makers didn't listen to Bill or the others on the ground. The U.S. and Canada sent troops to Haiti to prepare for Aristide's return. The first group was on a Navy ship called the USS Harlan County. From my office, I could see the USS Harlan County sail into Port-au-Prince Bay. I tell my secretary, oh good, here they come. But there was a problem. Just days before the USS Harlan County was set to arrive in Haiti, two U.S. helicopters involved in a peacekeeping mission had been shot down over Mogadishu. Somali rebels killed 19 U.S. Army Rangers. Most people will remember it as Black Hawk Down. Frap, they weren't dumb. Because a week later now, this big USS Harlan County Navy ship is supposed to dock in Port-au-Prince and unload 200 U.S. soldiers. I'll never forget that morning. On the dock in Port-au-Prince are these guys, frap. There they are, holding up handmade signs saying, we will make this another Mogadishu. And boy, all hell broke loose at that point. We were sent to secure the birthing 
where the ship would, would dock and where the peacekeepers would unload. While Bill O'Neill was watching the scene at the port from his office window, Luis Moreno was down on the dock in the middle of the action. As soon as we arrived on the port, you know, you could tell there was something wrong. Luis is a career member of the US Foreign Service. In 1993, he was sent to Haiti as a refugee coordinator. That day in October, he drove to the port with his colleague, Commander David Bruner. A lot of guys with machine guns who were drinking. They asked me if I wanted to leave, uh, and I said no. From inside his car, Louise could see about 100 people shouting and causing chaos on the dock. There was a, a young lady in a very short skirt and high heels wheeling around this pistol, like, and she was really inebriated, and she every once in a while would pop off around. In the middle of the chaos was a man named Emmanuel Constant, Toto for short. He was the son of Papadoc's army chief of staff. And as a child, he'd listened to his father and Papadoc plotting late into the night in his family home. Constant had followed in his father's footsteps. Toto Constant was the head of FRAP, and he projected this mystique of voodoo that a lot of uh, the political thugs in Haiti liked to do. Constant was known to hold voodoo ceremonies, which of course in Haiti is a widespread religious practice. He was known to lay on the ground, surrounded by skulls and fire, and then rise up from the flames. There were rumors that the skulls belonged to his victims. In the eyes of many Haitians, these rituals recalled the Duvalier regime and the voodoo lord of death, Baron Samedi, who Papadoc openly styled himself on. That day, Constant was dressed like a tonton macoute. He wore a, a handkerchief and red, I believe, in the back pocket and the sunglasses and the, the gold chain and the whole thing and the 9 millimeter or whatever he had strapped to his hip. Constant's thugs surrounded Luis's car with their guns drawn. The USS Harlan County was in sight from the port, slowly approaching. And then... They pointed the guns at our heads and said that if the ship landed, that would be the end of me and the Commander Bruner. The chaos on the dock was being broadcast around the world, live on TV. Dozens of armed men pounded on cars carrying U.S. diplomats and beat up foreign journalists waiting for the ship. Clinton and Les Aspen, Secretary of Defense, they're seeing CNN back in Washington, and they totally panic. And I remember seeing the boat kind of do a U-turn, and I told my secretary, I said, I was just going to get more fuel, don't worry. It was going. It was going. Going, going, gone. So FRAP slash Haitian army had just chased away the world's superpower. You know, 50, 60 half-drunk, half-drug guys on a dock just chased away the world's superpower. After an angry mob, he prevented the landing of some 200 U.S. and Canadian troops sent to help retrain Haiti's military and police force. The Haitian army and FRAP literally went crazy. When the ship went back across the horizon, everyone was shooting in, into the air and celebrating like crazy. Louise was still in his car when the USS Harlan County turned around. They were all distracted. They weren't pointing guns at us. And I started the vehicle and I ran the car through the gate and I made it back to the embassy in one piece. Louise escaped. And at that point, the US and the UN decided they had to get all of their people out. Bill O'Neill was given 24 hours to evacuate. I'll never forget the drive down to the airport that morning when we were leaving. There was nobody out. 
I don't think we saw a soul until we got to the airport. And there's all military there. And they're laughing and they're celebrating because they know we're leaving. American troops that were floating off the coast of Haiti are now gone, pulled back to America's base in Guantanamo, Cuba. At that point, the Governor's Island Agreement had totally broken down. U.S. officials insist the military mission to Haiti is not canceled, but it's clear the process that was designed to pave the way for the return of Aristide to power in Haiti is now in shambles. But Aristide himself had not given up. After all, there were 19 days until the deadline for him to be restored. He went on TV in Washington to demand that the U.S. enforce the agreement. We cannot let killers denying what the world said through this agreement. If we don't do that, what will happen to the U.S.? Refugees. What will happen to the Haitians? Death. And in Miami, radio broadcasters once again went into battle on the airwaves, rallying support for Aristide. But they would have to deal with the fact that Fraps' reach extended far beyond Haiti. I was already convinced after Fritz Dorr was killed that this was political. But the truth of the matter is, four is too much to be a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence. I had extensively covered death squads and paramilitary groups. So, yeah, it sensitizes you to what's going on. That's Larry Roeder, the Miami correspondent for The New York Times back in the 1990s. Miami became an extension of San Salvador, of Port-au-Prince, of all these places. Before coming to Miami, Larry had reported extensively on Latin America. That's where I met him, in El Salvador. It's where I cut my teeth as a foreign correspondent, covering the Civil War. Our experiences helped us understand what was going on in Miami. When I first went to El Salvador, liberation theology priests who were preaching in support of the rights of the poor were being murdered. They preached very similar messages to Father John Just and Aristide. The priests were often murdered by death squads, paramilitary groups who used terror to silence their opponents. Groups like FRAP. And shockingly, Larry's reporting uncovered that FRAP was operating on U.S. soil. My understanding was that the office in Miami, the office in New York, the office in Boston, and the office in Montreal didn't have a big sign out front that said FRAP, that it was more like the way the Italian mafia operates. Uh, You know, that's always some athletic club or social club where the guys go to hang out. Behind storefronts in Little Haiti, FRAP was plotting. Travel agencies, yeah, immigration offices, none of which would have been obvious to someone from outside the community. There was a restaurant across the street from the driving school where Fritz had his immigration office. It was called a Neptune. And FRAP members were known to hang out there, engage in illegal gambling, and make their presence known in Little Haiti. When we were in Miami reporting, we tried to get an understanding of how FRAP operated there. Is there a distinction between the old guard, Tonton Macoutes, and FRAP, which was acting as a pro-military militia? When people talked about these forces, what kind of distinctions did they make? 
In particular, we were interested in this question because according to police, Louis Thermitus, the record store owner and a person of interest in the murder cases, was known to many as a Tonton Macoot. So Anna, do you view that as a shorthand for FRAP? Well, you know, all these groups seem to have informal ties. So it's incredibly hard to say with certainty who was a member of what group. Yeah. It's not like these guys were running around with an ID hanging from their neck. In the end, the term Taunton Makut came to be shorthand for anyone who was anti-Aristide and pro-military. The bigger picture to keep in mind here is that the presence of the Makuts and FRAP in Miami served a very particular purpose. Which was to say to the people in Miami, don't get involved in this. Don't get involved in the negotiations. Don't speak too much to the press. Don't give money to the opposition. Just stay in your corner. And this was exactly the message that the murders of Jean-Claude and Fritz had sent. But Veo was continuing to fight for Aristide's return. And that could be a death sentence. He was a very, very nice guy. Oh, very sweet guy. I don't know why somebody would think of killing him. Because he was nice to everybody. This is Tony again, Fritz's co-host on the radio. He's talking about his friend, Donna Simplit. Donna was a member of VAO2, and he hosted his own radio program, a Sunday call-in show. Donna had been rattled by Fritz's murder, and ever since, he'd taken precautions. He always, after Fritz passed, he always walked with a gun. He said, I'm not going to die the way Fritz died. I always repeat that. Every day, I'm going to shoot somebody, I'm going to kill somebody before somebody kills me. But that Sunday, he didn't have that gun with him. I don't know what happened. That Sunday, October 24th, 1993, Donna devoted his show to the Governor's Island Accord demanding that Aristide be returned the following week, by October 30th, as agreed. See, the deadline for Aristide's return was just a week away, and Donna didn't want US policymakers to forget it, despite the failure of the USS Harlan County. After his show, Donna had evening plans. He'd organised a benefit concert for Fritz Dorr's children. But during the programme, he received a call into the show, warning him not to go to the concert that night. The caller said if he attended, he'd be shot. But Donna did go. It was held in a high school auditorium in Little Haiti, and Tony was there too. I think as the concert started, he went outside to his car to get something. Next thing I know, he got shot. At 9.40pm, minutes after leaving the auditorium, Donison Pleat was shot multiple times. Like Fritz, he was taken to Jackson Memorial Hospital, where he died of his wounds. Tony had lost another brother in arms in eerily similar circumstances. Donna was 41 years old and left a wife and six children behind. Less than five months later, another VAO member named Daniel Baron was gunned down in Miami, the fourth pro democracy broadcaster to be killed. To Tony, the message was clear. Be quiet. Aristide is not coming back to power. We were kind of 
powerless because we didn't have a lawyer, we didn't have the political clout, we got no money. The members of AEO were exhausted. They'd been demonstrating to return Aristide to power for months. But in Haiti, the death toll was much higher. It's definitely psychological warfare. It's saying to people, this is the price you will pay if we determine that you're making too much trouble. So Anna, as far as I understand, it was really after the murder of Donald St. Pleat, the third murder, that you started working on these cases in earnest and decided to put it into the report that you were working on for the CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists. What made you so sure at the time that these crimes were connected? For one thing, the Black Book surfaced again. That hit list with names of VAO members. The version I saw had an extra inscription. Make Aristide pay. Long live the army. These people must be shot before or on October 30th in Miami and in Haiti. October 30th was the deadline for Aristide's return to power. With Dona's killing, the pattern was undeniable. Pro-democracy broadcasters who spoke out against the military regime were being gunned down at moments when the political tension was highest, first in the lead-up to the election, and then just before the deadline for Aristide to return. And it was just after the murder of Donna St. Pleat that even some police officers started to acknowledge a pattern. They were all friends. They were all connected through the same political party, and they were preaching some of the same things. Irvin's Ford, the Miami police investigator, was sure after Dona's death that the killings were political. If you ask me, it's all connected. The motive was the same. The Vallejo broadcasters were calling out the military and the drug trafficking that propped up their power. And at some point, these uh, radio personalities like, listen, these guys are not creating chaos for political reason. They're creating chaos as a means to keep the Coast Guard occupied. As long as Haiti was in shambles, the drug trade could flourish. If you're looking for refugees, you know, you don't have time to be looking for drugs. And when there was a threat of having it exposed, I think there was a lot of panic. Would it be fair to say that there was basically a sort of silent civil war in Haiti that nobody really understood and that there were victims of that civil war on the streets of Miami? Absolutely. That's the best way I would describe it. But a political motive was difficult to prove. You have to remember the Haitian government, instead of getting assistance from them, a lot of them were involved in all this. So you couldn't rely on them for any kind of resources or information that would be crucial to the investigation. So we we were left stranded. We were literally on our own trying to figure out a murder that the motive initiated from across the water. Not everyone on the Miami police force saw the bigger picture. They couldn't get the Dade County police to believe that there was a death squad, or maybe that's going too far, to believe that there were organized hits taking place for political reasons. There's all these other pressures that, frankly, I think some of the um, you know, white bread American lawyers and police didn't appreciate. They just had no awareness of it. 
And when they were presented with the evidence, they couldn't digest it. Clearly, law enforcement was divided on how to investigate these murders. And none of the investigations led beyond a trigger man. Never led to the intellectual authors of the crime. The U.S. Special Envoy met with military leader General Raul Cedras, who was scheduled to resign today. But there's still no indication he will step down. October 30th came and went. The generals who currently run Haiti will not step aside. Aristide was not returned to Haiti. The military remained in control, and Frat became more emboldened. Next time, something else was going on behind the scenes. Could the CIA have something to do with this secret civil war? Did the CIA finance the Haitian paramilitary units that have been giving American forces and Haitians such a difficult time? This is not some sort of Haitian imagination. This was very real. Rumors swirled in little Haiti that the CIA knew about the radio murders before they happened. There was also a widespread assumption that the U.S. through the CIA was part of it, or at least um, gave the green light. That's next time. Silenced is a Kaleidoscope content original, produced by Margaret Katcher, Jen Kinney, and Padmini Ragunov. Research assistants from Sibylla Phipps, Jeremy Bigwood, and Kira Sinis. Edited by Lacey Roberts. Executive produced by Kate Osborne. Reported and hosted by Anna Arana and me, Osvaloshin. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Music by Oliver Rodigan, a.k.a. Cadenza. Mix and sound design by Kyle Murdoch. Thanks to Mangesh Hatikada, Kostas Linus, and Vahini Shuri. Our executive producers at iHeart are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Itor. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and subscribe to our channel. Thank you. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.